Logan. Thanks for joining me on this uh, next podcast. I've got uh, Bill High, Bill High out of Kansas City with the Signatory joining me in this podcast. And what Bill does is work with uh, families to understand how to manage the wealth that God has provided to family. And he breaks that down into five different types of wealth. And if you're assuming it's financial, financial is actually the last kind of wealth that Bill and his group speaks into. It's a very important part, but it's, it's not more important than the other four. And so what those other four are and how they work and, and what Bill does for uh, his clients through both his consulting practice and his financial practice with donor advised funds. We'll explore together in this upcoming podcast. And specifically for those of you who are listening, who want to, who, who, who have the goal of how do I steward my family for God's glory? And how do I steward my business for God's glory? Those are the two things that you'll be able to learn more about here on the Three Wins podcast with our guest, Bill Hi, thanks for joining and uh, appreciate any uh, feedback that you have. As always, please like the, the, the episode, push the uh, button on the, or as my dad would say, mash the button on the bell. And of course, subscribe to our channel. We appreciate you being a part of this and look forward to future episodes to come. Thanks. Welcome again to the Three Wins Podcast. My name is Russ Clemmer and I'm joined today by Bill Hi. Bill, thank you for being with us. We appreciate everything. Looking forward to hearing uh, some of your story, what you do with the signatory, some of your background and some of the things you're excited about in the future. And for all who are listening, we are a podcast that talks about the three wins and the collaboration effect on profits. And so what we mean by that is every company has an opportunity to impact many, many different people and relationships. And so at Legacy Advisory Partners, we work with companies to develop the three wins. What are those three wins that every company needs to have? The shareholder win, the company win, and the key leader win. But we also talk about the people involved. And so we talk about the grade eight virtues. So when you put the grade eight virtues together with the three wins, the result is the collaboration effect on profit. And under the shareholder win specifically, there's the idea of what are the shareholders doing with their family legacy? That's a very important thing to our listeners who are business owners. It's an important concept and either it happens intentionally or unintentionally, but everybody will go through the process of leaving a legacy. And so we appreciate you, Bill, for being a part of this podcast with us today. And thank you for being here. Thanks so much, Russ. Really glad to be here. Fun to be with you. Fun to be talking about legacy. And certainly you guys got a great name as a firm, Legacy Advisors. Well, thanks. Yeah, it, it's, it is a, it's a part of our messaging. It's a part of what we want to do. And, you know, if we're able to influence a little bit here and there, then, then we're grateful for the opportunity to, to work with different clients and expand this messaging. As I'm sure you are, and you've worked over the years at a, a very successful, but also career full of experience and, and finding things that worked and didn't work and going through the whole process yourself. So if you don't mind just kicking us off with a little bit of your background, specifically what you guys are doing with the signature. Sure thing. So I practice law for almost 12 years, big law firm in Kansas City. Mm -hmm. I joined that firm in 1988, kind of hard to believe it's been that long ago. And I left in June of 2000. I start there sometimes because people like they hear that law background. And I don't know, Russ, by the way, if we ever shared that 
the, the little joke that I always say is that when I was leaving the law firm, I just had my best year ever in the law firm <clears throat> and my biggest and best client, when they found out I was leaving, they came to me and they're like, you can't leave. Like, well, that's, that's nice of you to say that, but I'm like, why? Cause I am. And they're like, well, you can't leave. And they kind of kept going on. You can't leave. And then ultimately they said, Bill, you, you don't, you realize that when you send us a bill that you have the perfect lawyer name, Bill High. So there you go. I have not heard, I have not heard that joke, but that is, uh, yeah, it, it, that's that's appropriate for some attorneys. We have a whole shtick around that, but I won't bore you with that. But I start there just to say that sometimes people hear about the lawyer background. They think, OK, you know, this guy obviously worked hard and put it all together and came out and practiced law. But yeah. it's actually the story begins much earlier than that. they say that you're always the son of your father. My father was the oldest of eight grew up in a three-room log cabin, lived in the hills of the Missouri Ozarks. They literally were at the log cabin at the bottom of the holler. They were the dead end. And the trees were so thick that you had to cut them out just so you could let in the sunshine so they could have a little bit of a garden. So it was a very rough and backwards kind of life. And he was the oldest of eight. My grandfather, who I never really knew or met, wasn't the best or kindest guy that you would ever want to be around. And so, and so again, very poor background. You can do the math, eight kids, three room log cabin. And so it was a tough background. So after my dad got out of high school, he joined the service, which was really, if you will, the way out yeah. and <clears throat> joined the service, was in the army, went overseas and was stationed in Japan post Korean War, of course, post-World War II cleanup was still going on. And while he was there, he met my mom. And uh, she was full-blood Japanese. She grew up. She's still alive. She's 94. And she lives with us now. But she uh, grew up there in Japan when the Americans were bombing Japan. And they had four houses burnt down. They were running to the bomb shelters. She had to trade on the black market to get food for the family, a whole bit. So she, she's got quite a story on her own. So hmm. here you are, American hillbilly meets Japanese city girl, and they get married. They have six kids, and I'm number five out of six, and they brought those six kids back to the United States, or rather at that time, it was only one. The other five were born here in the U.S., but again, very poor background. He's in the service. People don't make a lot of money. They move around some. Mm -hmm. And just, again, a tough background. And so by the time I came along, you know, he'd gotten out of the service and he was trying to make it as a blue collar guy. He'd had a number of jobs, welder, builder, roofer, all this kind of stuff, kind of always moved around. But I mean, we were a welfare family. Salvation Army brought us Christmas gifts, that kind of stuff. It was it was a hard, hard background. Had no faith background whatsoever, by the mm -hmm. way. So we, our family was devoid of a larger purpose. And kind of crazy that there was a family down the street who had become believers in a church plant in the town that we lived in. And the town that we lived in was 100 people, Waldron, Missouri, down by the Missouri Riverbanks. 
And the short of it is that, so stop and pause and think of that for a little bit. Why would you plant a church in a town of a hundred people? You're not going to get many people. So, but they did. And so this group of families planted this church and it was our neighbor two doors down the uh, street that became believers through that church plant, brought us a children's bar Bible story book. And that's how I really came to faith in Christ mm -hmm. through that children's mm -hmm. Bible story book. So in event, I, I say all that say that eight, eight, nine, 10 years old is really my first experience with the idea that there's a life bigger than myself, that there is a God that I was not, and that mm -hmm. I needed hope above and beyond myself. It became really critical because a couple of years later, my dad passed away of cancer. Mm -hmm. he, he died when I just barely turned 12 and left my mom with six kids to raise. At that mm -hmm. time, my oldest brother had just gone to college, mm -hmm. which was a miracle in and of itself. My dad didn't want him to go. It was like, you need to get a job and you need to figure out how to make money rather than wasting your time on college. But when he died, my mom had actually hardly ever worked out of, outside the home and had, didn't have a driver's license and had to get all that after he passed away. And, we just, I, I didn't find this out two years later, but she got approved for social security survivors benefits about a month before he died. He mm -hmm. died December 18th of 1974. So a week before Christmas, otherwise we might've well been homeless. Mm -hmm. So that's the background. Sound like mm -hmm. a lot of fun. But you came through, I guess at some point you attended college, went on to law school and, and faith, your faith carried you through that. What what was that? How, what was the motivating factor for you to to continue to pursue that? Oh, yeah, the Bible talks about the idea that God is a defender of the widow and a father to the fatherless. Mm -hmm. And so I really experienced that in my life because at different points along the way, God gave me different father figures, people who could come in and give me wisdom and advice, point me a direction. And I just became one of the neat things that happened over time. And so five out of six kids went to college. We were all able to go. We got grants, scholarships, all those kind of things. So somehow, somewhere in the midst of all that poverty, we were pointed towards a direction. My oldest brother became a believer through the Navigator mm -hmm. Collegiate Ministry, started showing me how to read the Bible. And so by the time I was in high school, I definitely had some sense that my call was to take care of God's people. The first Peter five idea, tend the flock of God. Mm -hmm. I didn't know what that meant. Again, I didn't have a ton of guidance. So I went on to college, got a degree, thought I'd teach and coach sports. I know you've got that background as well. Yeah. Yeah. I, lo I love that idea. But in my last year of school, I had a friend who, who had all his whole life, by the way, he had planned to go to law school, become a U.S. senator or a district attorney, something like that. He's mm -hmm. like, well, you really had to go to law school. So I ended up applying for law school more on a whim. Um, I thought it would be an advanced liberal arts degree. And so every law school I applied to, six, seven law schools, and I got accepted, except to one, but I got scholarship offers. But the very last law school I applied to ended up giving me a full ride, University of Kansas. Hmm. So I got a full ride, tuition and books. And then in August, 
So school is going to start in like late August. They send me a letter and this is, we're going to take away your scholarship, but we're going to give you a fellowship. So you can get tuition, books, and a living stipend. So I was like, I ought to go to law school. So I did. <laughs> so I went to law school yeah. and it was a great experience, really taught me how to think, how to ask questions. That was a big thing in law school. Yeah. And then when I graduated from law school, I thought I was going to go work for a smaller law firm. I felt like that was going to be a good environment. And then I ended up getting recruited into the largest, one of the largest law firms in Kansas City. And was there, as I say, for almost 12 years, I got to do a little bit of everything, even though we were a big law firm, we acted like a small firm. And so I did everything from drafting a will to working on insurance cases to helping. We had half the firm work on a leverage buyout of a company that was going from public to private. Mm -hmm. So by the end of my career, I was mainly focused on commercial litigation, large cases, complex cases, and was really starting to find my groove. And then that's when I told you that this calling of taking care of God's people really became evident. And ultimately what happened in that is I had volunteered with a friend of mine in inner city ministry in Kansas City. So we were on the streets there in Kansas yeah. City trying to bring some collaboration to nonprofit organizations in Kansas City. That's so that's like 1997, 98. I was doing that with my best friend. He, his brother was African American pastor in inner city Kansas City. So we helped launch this inner city ministry in Kansas City. You need to always reach the core of your city because what's ever happening in the core of your city is going to happen in the suburbs five, 10 years later. But as we were launching that ministry, that's when uh, this group of people I was working with said, man, you need to find a way that we can raise money for this ministry because you don't fund that kind of ministry in uh, the constituents that you serve. Yes. So that idea led us to kick around the idea of what it would it like to look like to start a foundation. So we looked at a lot of different models. There was something out of the East called the Leadership Foundation. There was something down in Memphis that we looked at. We looked at a lot of different models, but ultimately we looked at this model of the Community Foundation, a donor advised fund model and said, this is a great tool to be able to serve not only donors, but ministries as, as well. So on June 1 of 2000, we launched. That sounds a big deal, but the launch meant that I resigned from the partnership at the law firm and I went downstairs to my basement and opened up my desktop computer and figured out how to incorporate, get bylaws, and to file for tax-exempt status. A few months later, we ended up finding the National Christian Foundation that could serve as our back office. Good. So we signed an agreement with them to serve as our back office. And this is you know, June, July, August of 2000, so 22 years ago. But the short of all that is that our, our first brand, by the way, was called the Christian Community Foundation in Kansas City. And we called it in Kansas City because we thought, hey, we're going to be in other cities. And sure enough, it wasn't too long before we had the opportunity to be in other cities. And ultimately, we had clients in all parts of the country. So mm -hmm. 
us a little bit about how we got launched. I don't know if you've got any questions from there that you want to ask, but yeah, and and you know what it seems like, and I guess the you're ahead of me in experience and years and and obeying the Lord, but it seems like you just kind of take the next step, even though you don't know how to do it necessarily all the time. It's not like you have a master plan sitting in front of you and but you so you resigned and you went downstairs to the basement and you opened up your laptop to figure out how to do the next things, but you had already obeyed. I mean, you were taking that step of obedience with what you were supposed to be doing and those different, you know, it didn't fall together perfectly, but you still obey. And I think that's part of what I hear from, you know, people when we interview folks on the podcast is that I, I obeyed the next thing I knew to do, even though that, you know, steps, you know, nine through a hundred were not clearly laid out. Yeah, I mean, you you see this repeated in scripture, this idea that to obey is better than sacrifice. Mm -hmm. And we always felt like and continue to feel like at some level that we're building the plane while we fly it. But I, I clearly had this sense that God was calling us away from the law firm in February of 2000, as we were starting to organize, I did a personal retreat took 24 hours, went out to the woods, was in a cabin. Remember very distinctly that it was kind of a cold February day. The the leaves were swirling around in the nighttime. And it was just me. It was quiet. It was uh, quiet in the wind, nothing else. And I just read through the book of Exodus. And just as I was reading through the book of Exodus, this whole idea that I'm going to take you out and take you to a land became very evident. And a couple of verses really stood out. One, of course, is the picture of Moses and the burning bush. And uh, the burning bush idea is it's not like the bush was consumed, but it's that Moses turned aside to look. And the part of the idea from that that I had to wrestle with is was this a burning bush moment and was I going to turn aside to look because oftentimes if that comes up I'm not sure that they come again and so we wanted to be obedient to the burning bush moment but then one of the other things that came out of that passage in that book of Exodus 32 book chapters 32 33 34 is that Lord we don't want to go anywhere but that you've gone before us. So we need to know that you've gone before us. So I came out of that personal retreat with the sense that God was directing us out. And and as things progressed, now, mind you, there is a board. We're starting to form as a board. None of us, you know, if you talk to our board members, they'd say, hey, we're going to start a foundation. But they'd say, we don't know you know, the difference between a house foundation and a community foundation. So we were just figuring out, we just had the sense that there was a call here for us to do this. But as it's, you know, the months pass, couple months pass, I come to my wife. Now, mind you, they're interviewing other candidates to run this. Mm -hmm. And I think they're going to come to me ultimately. And so I come to my wife and I say, hey, I think they're going to offer me this job. Now, job in quotes, of course, because this means that it's a startup organization, not incorporated, doesn't have a full budget, doesn't have full funding, all these kind of things. I mean, so job, you know, who knows? But the bottom line is when I went to my wife 
and said, I think they're going to offer me the job. She's like, what? Are you kidding me already? And we'd been talking about this for like 18 months. And probably the wisest thing I did at that point, maybe ever in my life, is I said, stop, wait, wait a minute. We cannot do this unless you are on board. And so mm. I said, you got to take a couple months or a couple weeks rather and pray about this. And if you don't think we should do this, we can't do it. She came back in a little more than a week and said, in essence, what else would we do? What else would we do? We can stay at the law firm, had my best year ever, make a lot of money. You know, today partners in that firm are making a lot of money. There's, I had some spinoff opportunities that would have come up as well. And those guys have all made a lot of money. And it took me a long time, by the way, to ever get back to where I was. But the short of it is we had this great adventure in front of us. And the question was whether we would go do it or not. And so yeah. the question of why not, why not? So anyway, that led us then a couple months later, resigned from the firm, get started on June 1 of 2000 in my basement. Well, and, and you know, that's a, that's a founder's story. And so many of the folks that we work, and you too, you're working with people who had that moment of saying, you know, I'm doing this over here, but I think I can do it myself. And I'm going to take this, well, you know, good paying job. I got benefits. I got these different things. And, you know, I might go borrow some money or buy a piece of equipment or go do, you know, go try to spin off this book of clients or something. And I'm going to go do it myself because of some level of conviction some level of leading, some level of, you know, if they're, if they're believers, they've got this, you know, uh, burning bush moment and they spin off and they go through that same thing. And so, you know, you being able to kind of relate to some of those stories and then be able to comment on now you've been through all of this. What does this mean for your family? What does it mean to be able to give and to pay it forward and to support folks. And, and it seems like, you know, sometimes God puts us through these experiences so that we have a high level of empathy. No question. Yeah. The, if you saw the movie with Matt Damon called We Bought a Zoo, there's a great line in there where it says it only takes like 20 seconds of insanity where you go ahead and make the decision and boom, off you go. And you look back later and think that was insane. <laughs> and so it's all those things. It's conviction. It's the idea that we should yeah. go. It's the idea of risk. I think God is extremely pleased by risk. Mm. And the parable in Matthew 25, the parable of the talents is very much this idea of risk. The guy that got five talents, he went and invested and went to, to work on it. And I asked myself, could ask you the question, what would have happened when the master came back and the guy with five talents said, you know, master, I went out there and I invested and I did this and I did that, but I lost it all. You know, I don't think the master would have said, no, I'm holding you accountable for the results. I think he would have said, well done just as well, because he was willing to take the risk. I tried to grow it and I made mistakes and here's what I learned. So anyway, the guy that was not commended, of course, was the guy that took no risk. So God wants us to take risk. 
Yeah, and, and you do wonder at some point along the way at that that fellow who went out and, and invested and it came he came back with more. You know, did he did he invest and automatically have more? Was it only upward trajectory, or did he take you know a couple steps back along the way before he had to report back to the master? And that really is that that that's a really good perspective. I really like that burning bush moment and, and you know, going, going back to that point with Moses just for a second, it's interesting that as the church is being launched in Acts, you have Stephen give a speech and it's all about where we came from or where the listeners during that, that time came from the Jewish people, from Abraham. Right. He had nothing when he moved to Haran, no in, inheritance, and he fast forwards into Moses and he wasn't wanted by his people because he had grown up outside of their culture in the Egyptian culture. And then you fast forward to that burning bush moment. And who is standing there listening when the people go and stone Stephen? And it's Saul, right? Later, Paul. And fast forward a couple of chapters and Paul gives a speech. And it, he starts with the same going back to Moses. And so it's that in each of those opportunities, Paul had to listen to, Paul got a little slap in the face, right? He, he was one of those, I think where it's where the, the term, you know, come to Jesus uh, meeting, uh, that's where that comes out of. He, he had to meet with Jesus and be able to say, hey, you need to stop doing what you're doing. I've got the plans for you. Yeah. And that you're hitting on one of the key points for founders that we really emphasize is this idea that, so even with Stephen and Paul, you find them looking back and remembering the story of where yeah. God's brought them. And so we always emphasize the idea to these founders that we work with. It's this idea that you've got to know your stories. What are your top 10 stories that your people, your family need to know? And so let me just digress a little bit, that idea of us beginning to work with families. So a donor advised yeah. fund organization, as many of the people listening to this would know, is it's the idea of your own foundation, but it's just easier to run. It's yeah. like creating a bank account inside of a, a bank, but the account is charitable. So you put money in, take a tax deduction, and then use it to support the charities that you want because it's simple. Yeah. You're know, giving through the account and then you yeah. support the different charities. Yeah. So that's the donor advice fund piece. But over time, what happened is that we help people. I mean, now, 20 some years later, we've seen more than 5 billion in contributions, more than 3 billion in grants out. So it's been a wild ride to see the donor advice fund world really work. But what happened is we started having families come to us. And this is your reference, Russ, of families come to us saying, man, it's great to live generously, but we're at a point of transition. We're either going to sell or we're going to try to bring in our kids or, you know, we've got to figure out what to do with these other shareholders, et cetera, et cetera. And we started having those people come to us and say, what do we do now? And that's where some of the work that I'm doing now today really is this big difference. So we, the, the signatory is a now a Christian donor advice fund. But we also do some consulting. We work directly with families in the process of transition. We try to help them figure out how they're going to be generational as a family. Most people 
are far more intentional about their business and their business lives than they are about their family. Yeah. So that's the turn that we're really trying to help make of which it's that point about what are your stories? You got to remember, you know, those moments of risk, what it took to get there as a means to help the next generation succeed. And, and you know, the, you got all the statistics about, you know, and you look back in history and how did you maintain, you know, the, the certain wealth classes of people? Well, you gave it to your, you know, your, your kid. And there were rules, right, about who got it if, you know, you didn't have a kid, who did it go to? Like, there are all these different types of rules and everything else. And, and there are some, you know, cultural rules within the U.S., right? There's still some expectations around money and property and possessions and everything else. But what's unique about this is that question of what it, it's only mine for a certain period of time. Right. When it when I'm not here to steward it anymore, what am I proactively doing to set that to set that next generation of stewardship up for success? So walk us through some of those things. And, and you know, there's a there's a book folks can get that you were uh, one of the authors on un heritage. I think there are a couple of others that you've written in that series. And you talk about heirs, you talk about preparing the next generation. What are some of the things that you walk through in this family consulting work to get folks ready? So one of the families, of course, that we have worked with is the Hobby Lobby family. So we wrote a book called Giving It All Away and Getting It All Back Again. Mm -hmm. And we outlined some of that in the book, but the basic ideas that we try to say, one, number one, you have to realize that legacy first is not what you leave behind. Legacy is what you put in motion. So for the family of faith, we say, you're not living for this day. You're living for that day. There is a long tomorrow. If you're a person of faith and you believe in heaven, there's a long tomorrow. And you got to live for that day. It's the idea of who, go, who are going to be the people who are gathered around you, your spouse, your kids, your grandkids, et cetera. And with that legacy, the question that's going to be asked is, what did you do with what I put in your hands? And legacy is not neutral. Legacy is going to be either good or bad. And again, we're all pointing to that day. Second Corinthians 5.10 says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ and be held accountable for what we've done in the body, whether good or bad. It doesn't say whether good, neutral or bad. So it is good or bad. So whatever God's put in your hands, you've got to say, what am I supposed to do with that? So when you start with those ideas that legacy starts to look like that and legacy is long term, that's one of the first principles that we begin to talk about. And then a second big principle from there is, so you got this business of which you're a steward, but you have this thing called family as well. Are you more intentional about your business or your family? And so we'll typically ask the question, what's the purpose of family? You know, Russ, why did God give you that wife and kids? And what's that purpose? Is it just so you guys can have fun and have nice vacations? And then you raise them up so you can kick them out and go play golf, which is really the mentality that we've allowed culture to seep into. It's this idea that kids are fun, but they're also expensive. We want to raise them up. So we're done. 1960 is the peak of uh, family, if you will, in the U.S., the nuclear family. So mm -hmm. two parents and kids sitting around the dinner table, it's like 70% of all homes 
uh, doing that. Today, it's 45%. Hmm. So we've had this sh- steep decline about the purpose of family. So come back to that question. Why did God give you that family? It's so that your family could be generational in nature. Nobody sets out to have kids that you want to screw them up. I mean, if you do, then something's really wrong with you. So if you take all those ideas that your family's meant to be multi-generational, that your legacy is what you're putting in motion that day, not this day, then the principles that you have to work at are first three. So you talk about the three wins. We talk about the three essentials of family. One is relational health. You got to be healthy as a family. That health looks like all forms of wealth. It's the intellectual, social, spiritual, emotional, and financial health. Mm -hmm. Now, by the way, if you don't pass on financial wealth, they're going to be fine. But you've got to teach your kids to be wealthy on a relational side. For instance, on the emotional side of things, they need to be able to express their emotions the heartache, the good, the joy, all those kinds of things. So the relational health is the first part. It's the same kind of work that you'll come in and do inside of a company where you're trying to say, how's the culture here? Well, we tend not to think about that question as it relates to family. So relational health is first. And then there's structure that you have to put in place inside of a family. And so how do we know that a family is going to be healthy? Again, some of the technical side of what we do is we're going to come in and take a look at, for instance, in a family-owned business, we're going to take a look at the bylaws, we're going to look at buy-sells, we're going to look at the structure to see, do we have a successor identified? We do assessments, personality profiles, strength finders, all these kind of things to say, are we trying to force a kid to be the next leader when they're not? or they shouldn't be, or they don't want it. Let's get honest with ourselves. But then as it relates to the family, how can we set up a structure that will allow this family business or the family itself to thrive for generations to come? So one of the keys, by the way, on the structure piece, fundamental piece, how do we know if a family is being successful? One of the key elements is, do they have regular family meetings? Do those family meetings contain things like the health of the family, a understanding of the personalities in the room, et cetera. So relationship structure. And the third piece that we miss in our Western culture is training. How do we actually begin to train the next generation to be members of this family and to pass on the core values of the family in an intentional way? So those are the three things we're really trying to put in place inside of a family. And when you see a family begin to get it, then they have better conversations, more honest conversations. They deal with conflict in ways they haven't. They actually begin to have structure around what it looks like to be successful. They begin to identify the talent that they have inside the family and put that talent to work in the right places. Some of that might be as simple as, Who's going to organize the family reunion? Who's going to organize the games? You know, but who's going to organize actually the coming together? It's Mm. those kind of things because you see that the scriptures, by the way, if you go back into the Old Testament, there are seven festivals a year. It took time and work to plan. There's a weekly festival, if you will, which is called Sabbath. Yeah. All those things start to say, here's a way that the family governs itself because family is the first institution that we have in the Bible. Before the fall, 
before church, before government, et cetera. And so families, that first institution, you're out of work at making sure that it's successful as a unit. Wonderful. So what do you do if, 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 you know, the, the, the family is not going to continue on in the business, but you still have, you know, the, the, the wealth within the family that, you know, a founder or business owner has developed and, and achieved. How do you invite, what's the, how do you work through when, you know, family member says, no, nah, I don't really, you know, they're kind of out on their own. They don't want to be a part of that. Is it just that they don't be a part of that or how, how do you walk through that struggle of, of including some and not others if they don't want to be, or, you know, they don't have the ability to, to, you know, to lead well, or what, what does that look like? We're working with family right now where, to be honest, we, we told them you need to sell. There's just so many other factors that are where they're at and they, they need to sell. And this is pretty big family owned business, quite a few family members in it, but we're like, you guys got to sell. There's really no choice. But what we say to them in that environment is you've got to find your reason to be. What is your reason to be as a family? You can be a successful generational family, even if you don't have a family owned business. So at one level, at a minimal level, it says, hey, Russ, what are you and your wife's core values? So talk about those core values. We typically tell a family that they've got to have at least five core values that they're trying to teach their kids intentionally. So what are going to be the values you're going to teach? And then second, what are going to be the stories that you're going to tell? Because if you tell the stories, you can perpetuate the family. And then thirdly, at a minimum, we say, what's your family going to be known for? Your family generosity. So you're going to be a family of integrity. What do you give and support how do you get your kids involved in that? So all those things get wrapped up into that question of saying, what's your reason to be? Now, if you own a business and you exit at some level where the, the, the numbers are significant enough, then sometimes we say, how do you start using that wealth to perpetuate the family? It's the family bank idea. You know, yeah. can you make a loan for a new startup, some of those kind of things. So lots of creativity around that. But those are the basic elements. Find your reason to be, even if there's not a business. Yeah, awesome. So, so what are the thing, some of the things that you're excited about looking into the future? Where are some of the, the, the changes or, or just some things that the Lord is leading? Signature and you and different things. What are some of the things that are, that are ahead that you're looking forward to that are, uh, are exciting? So Signature is still going, running. We've got a CEO president, Steve French, who is running Signature. He's okay. doing an incredible job. My role there is executive chairman and founder, so I still you know, have people that I will work with on that side of it. But that work tends to be a little bit more transactional today. The consulting work, we, I do do consulting with individual families. That's called Generational Legacy Council. But I can only take on so many families in the course of that. So kind of right in the middle, the, the, the middle ground of what we're working on today is as we've done 
this work with families on the generosity side and on the consulting side. We've had a whole group of families that say, man, we want more. We want to know how to become a generational family. So we started a series of workshops mm -hmm. that we lead families through in different parts of the country. And those workshops have continued to gain momentum. We'll continue to do those workshops. This, by the way, this middle ground is really, it's an education ministry. So we are an offshoot of the signatory. And our job is to educate families about this idea of multi-generational family. So we do that in the form of workshops. Workshops, again, all around the country. We are looking to grow the number of certified facilitators to lead those workshops. And then we also are going to be launching a series of digital courses that you can take 24-7. Just go to our website. And then the third thing that we're really excited about is a set of small groups that we're launching. So we're going to launch a set of small groups where we can teach the everyday family some of these principles of what it means to be successful family. So this ministry, we call it Vine Legacy. Mm -hmm. Vine Legacy, it is bearing family fruit that lasts. So that's the fun part. It's the idea that we can reach 30 million families in the U.S. And certainly there's an opportunity for the global family as well. But it really just starts, Russ, with this idea that if God's design is that your family would be a 150-year family, what are the things that we know that will allow you, if you implement it, that it'll at least give you the framework for generational success. So that's a part of what I'm truly excited about in this next season of what we're doing. Yeah, yeah. There's a concept of evergreen businesses, 100-year businesses. They, they, you know, want to perpetuate for years to come. And, you know, so that, that sounds very similar to that. And there's a group called the Tugboat uh, Institute or Tugboat Group that, that teaches that. And that's what their kind of goal is in the business side. But you don't, it, it seems, you know, the, the, the independent nature of people in the U.S. compared to other cultures, it's, well, I'm going to go do my thing, right? I'm going to go, I'm going to go find my tro true identity. And there's a, there's a, there's an understanding that, yes, you can go and do that, but it's often too late that the cost is realized, of detaching yourself from history. And some people want to run from their history. Some people want to say, I don't want anything to do with that. And maybe a start over is, is important, right? A, a, a re-identification re through Christ is important in what they're doing. But so often you see people who have, have grown up in decent situations that they're going to go and start their own thing and redefine what they're doing. And they let go of all of that history and they let go of all of that identity that is within family and it's something that's taught. And so how have you kind of experienced some of that? How do you, how do you go, you know, working with the next generation in a family? How do you work through some of those where people are, they're just not sure they want to be a part of, right? How do you work through some of that? Well, number one, we do try to encourage them to get to a workshop because they've got to get these foundational principles of what's the purpose of family. They've got to work on their family communication. I mean, I don't know of anybody, Russ, that would say, 
I wish that they would say, man, let me just get rid of my family. Now, maybe there's been enough hurt and pain, but ultimately we all long to have a great family. Yeah. Uh, so you've got to get to that. But then as it relates to the business side of things, if there is an underlying business, then you've got to address your realities. So you've got to, number one, ask yourself, am I the right person to continue to lead? Have I put in place a succession plan? And am I being realistic about who my successors are? If the business still needs you, if you are so essential to the business, you're probably in a bad place. Yeah. Uh, almost inevitably, I see companies where they have horrible documents. They have documents that are okay legal documents, but they are very poor in terms of legacy and helping the family, those kind of things. If you have a private foundation, for instance, almost always those documents are going to go awry. If you're contemplating succession or the exit of a business, this is where they need to be having those conversations with groups like you. Most companies are, are poorly set up to move towards an exit plan. And then, as you know, at a, at a personal level, many of these founder types who have these kind of businesses don't know what they're going to do after they leave. They haven't worked on it. They haven't worked on what their next calling will be. And so they still want to kind of fiddle with the business, particularly if they've got a kid coming in. And that kind of intervention can be very difficult. So lots and lots of challenges. And so to the extent you kind of boil that down into one thing, it's you've got to take that realistic step back and you've got to say, I've got to start earlier. This is not the kind of thing that people start on and say, oh, you know, a couple of years, I'll get to that. If you're somewhere, if you've been in business for 10, 15 years, now's the time to say, what's my next step? And you have to bring in outside advisors. You cannot try to do this by yourself, particularly as it relates to the family. So I've seen disaster after disaster of guys that were uh, trying to get it done. One little quick aside, had a friend of mine that tried to do it. He, he did it. He was kind of managing the transition of the business, kids into the business. And he read the books. He went to the conferences. And I thought, to be honest, he was kind of nailing. And I'm like, man, this is maybe the first time I've ever seen this work mm-hmm. where a guy's leading his family through the process until he made a decision about some of the share ownership and who the next leader was. The next leader wasn't the oldest kid. It was the youngest kid. And then boom, it, it blew apart. And he was surprised. But to my point is that there were just things he couldn't see because he had a blind spot. Hmm. And had he worked with somebody from the outside, he would have been able to navigate that process. Now, it's kind of back together, but ultimately, he sold the business. Mm, mm, mm. Yeah, the, the, if you are able to do that job, right, you know, if you're, if you're, if you're saying, all right, I can also lead my family through this transition, and you can do it well. Well, then that's what you ought to go do professionally. But that's not what you, that's not what you do professionally. They it's a acquired set of skills. And we often come across business owners who founders, entrepreneurs who 
say, well, we've really got most of those things in place already. We've worked hard on that. We've got those things in place already. And most of the time, what they mean is I've thought through it and presented uh, a scenario to the rest of my people, whether on the family or the business. And those people, they don't push back. And because they didn't push back, we have something in place. It all, all of a sudden it's a, we, when it really is just an I. Correct. And that one individual is steering. Now it may be 85% good, but it doesn't mean it's right yet. And what we find in all of these situations where we work with a, a leader in a, in a set of key, an owner in a set of key leaders who are not owners. If the owner is saying, here's the vision of the company come and join me in it. That's fine. They may, and they may do a really good job in it, but it's not everybody's vision. It's not every, everybody is not as collaborating together as if they all built that vision together. It's the owner's vision. It may be inspiring. It may be something that's incurred, you know, we're, we're excited to go and do, and it fits within what we see for our own selves at that time, but it's not the same. And so when we talk about a three wins vision, shareholder, company, and key leader, the company is all stakeholders. It's a goose that lays a golden egg. What are we doing with the company? That's what we come back to. If God owns it, if you're just a steward of it, right? Stewardship in our legal system falls within shareholders and non-shareholders. And if you've got owner-minded people, how do we make sure everybody is leaning in to provide the leadership and the visionary expertise that in their particular role with their specific gifts and abilities, how do you go in and, and, and you know, make sure that everybody is winning? And when you do, there's that question of, can we achieve the collaboration effect on profit? So we always go back to the three wins and the grade eight. The three wins is the money and the, and the financials and the, 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 the planning and then you come over and say, all right, what about the people and how they get together? How do they work together? We talk about the vices. If you can promote the vices and you can guard against the vices, right? Promote the virtues and guard. So let me flip that back. Promote the virtues and guard against the vices. You can collaborate at a really high level. And what is the impact on those profits? Now, profit is obviously it's financial, right? But it's just to your point as well, there's all kinds of profit, right, that you can experience, the advancement of different things. And if you're investing in an emotional relationship and you are uh, taking more out of that relationship than you're putting in, you're not going to have a profit. You're not going to have a surplus. You're not going to have, you're not going to be ahead at the end of it. And so what we talk about is the collaboration effect on profit on the business side, right? You got people who are coming together around a, a specific purpose and vision around an entity, but you can achieve the same thing on the family side too. And that's, that's the, the, you know, in our society, the patriarch not sitting there telling everybody, well, this is what our family is about. This is what we're going to do fall in line. How does everybody come together to define that? Yeah, no what question. That perspective? And that's the part of the point is that when you talk about your three wins, I actually was referring to you guys this week with another family but it's one thing to talk about how do the shareholders win when those shareholders are family. 
dads or siblings, and you're having to manage that. So you get this additional amplification. And so the idea of talking about the company win versus shareholder win can get very complicated because we're not just talking about family business from a, if it's the dad down to kids, you know, the CEO to shareholder kids, the problem is you do have relational history. It's not just about the company. It's about the family too. So it's a lot harder road to navigate inside the family owned business. Now, if you navigate it successfully, then the difference is huge. But as you appreciate, not many people do. And add on one more layer, the key leader, that third part of your shareholder win. What happens if you know the key leader in one of the kids or in a family member, and they're just a manager? You got a different kind of equation too. Or what if, you know, that's the hard driving dad who's actually never allowed the kids to lead. So lots and lots of complications. And in many cases, it takes humility on the part of the leader to say, I do need some help here. Yeah. And the third party perspective, you know, there's, even though you being a consultant, me playing a consultant role with my clients, I can get emotionally involved at some level. But there's always a hard stop. My, my perspective is objective and it's third party in a way that it, it, you just can't bridge that gap. You can't. And that is the value of having that third party, somebody looking from the outside. And, you know, you've got so many different stories where you can look at and say, you know, depend, based on everybody's attitude right now, I can probably kind of predict which way this will go. And yep. if I don't, if I don't provide these insights and the in, in the instruction and that teaching ministry, uh, education ministry that you talked about, which I love, you know, a consultant is a teacher, right? A consultant is not just hear all the right answers, but here, here's how you go find your right answers, right? And walking them through that, then you know that's a that's a value that that a lot a lot of times I'm going to pull myself up by my bootstraps. A founder and entrepreneur is not always willing to entertain and, and you know, yeah. accept, but it's a good thing when, it, when, when folks step into that. And, and I, would, I, would add, I would add one more thing to any family looking to kind of, you know, jump through some of these hurdles in, in, you know, us, you know, David Harper is the, is my father-in-law and I'm buying him out. And so there, and, I, and I'm, a, I'm an in-law, right? There are hurdles that we are working through in the same way. And I know you've given him some great advice and great insight, but the, the question is, it's never clean, right? You never look at it and look back and say, yeah, there's no scars. There's always going to be scars because we're imperfect people, but we guard against that so that there isn't an explosion or, you know, something that you can't recover from. You're guarding against, you know, the, 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 the tendency for us to, self-preserve there's always going to be some scars it's never perfectly clean but the end result is why it's worth going through yeah and for clarity's sake too russ i think it's worth pointing out that i'm typically not getting hired by the company i'm getting hired by the family right so i'm inevitably going to work maybe with the founder and the spouse who may not be in the company. I'll I'll work with the next generation, including spouses, including kids who may not be in the company. Whereas your guys' focus clearly is much more at the 
company level. So I may work alongside someone like you move towards the right result. Yeah, our passion is is definitely within the company. And, and, you know, there's our team at Legacy is a unique mixture. And we are, you know, just do some some self-marketing here. We're, we're specifically designed, uniquely designed to be able to tackle that non-family member, leader, executive, key person retention, incentive and retention conversation, which is often, you know, something that you end up having to tackle in, in you know, it's not just a money question. It's a purpose and fulfillment question, and there's a lot that goes on uh, in it. And something I was talking with somebody just a minute ago about family. Oftentimes, you can see yourself as a family member, even though you're not. And when you're all of a sudden not treated like one, sometimes that can be demoralizing for those key leaders who have grown up in the business, maybe, or they've been a part of things at a much more personal level than non-family own businesses typically, executives typically experience. But that's an important feature to be able to, to, to walk through. And that's why it's collaboration. It's an interpersonal conversation. It's interpersonal perspective. And, and I appreciate what you guys you know do and how you're doing that. And so the small groups, the digital courses, and, and, and you know kind of thinking through some action steps for people listening who may be at different journeys along that family legacy planning process making sure they're, they're taking advantage of all the different opportunities that you guys have. What are some, what are some kind of walking away uh, points for people to remember? Because remember? we've covered a lot of ground. What are some walking away points for people to remember that you would encourage? Uh, yeah, the simple thing is, I mean, just go to my website today, billhigh.com, sign up for the right. newsletter there. We write about family legacy generosity. If people are interested in attending a workshop, shoot us a note through there and say, I'd like to attend a workshop. I'd like to go down that road of helping build a family that's going to last for the next hundred years kind of idea. And then we'll we'll keep them updated on the launch of the digital courses. Uh, Likewise, somebody may say, I'm interested in the small group and helping facilitate a small group around that. So it's more of a facilitation. You don't have to teach it. But those were some of the simple next steps. But ultimately, we say, man, get started now. If they're if they're if they are looking at transition in the company, by all means, contact you. Contact the signatory. Let's get that structured. You can't wait too long, as you know. So those are a handful of things to take advantage of. Good, good. Yeah, and all of those links will be in the description um, of the video below. Um, if you're watching on on YouTube, if you're if whatever you're listening on an audio podcast uh, version of this, check out the links. They'll be posted in there as well. Bill, thank you very much for taking some time out of your day to share with the Three Wins group. It's a pleasure to have hosted you on here and being able to, number one, number one, be able to say, all right, this is how, this is how you can fulfill, continue to fulfill your role as a steward of whatever you have in your life. And I love the, the, the way that you define the five different ways you talk about wealth. And I think that that's the, the, the beauty of that is it applies to everybody, no matter where you come from, no matter what you have or you don't have, you have decisions around wealth because God has endowed us with things and gifts and skills and abilities and relationships that carry those forward. So thanks very much for being a part of Thank you, uh, Russ. time and, and appreciate everything very much and look forward to talking with you again soon. All right. Sounds good.